Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 228, The Japanese Are Coming. Last time, the British-led forces had had their military success. The Diego Suarez Bay was now under their control. But then they suffered a political defeat, as de Gaulle wanted in, to which the Vichy officials on the island, working with the British, replied, Nothing will get done if the fighting French are here. So Churchill kept de Gaulle at arm's length from Madagascar and himself. As the main difference between a civilian and a soldier is practice, with each battle comes the after-action report and a breakdown of events to see what could be learned. And as this was Britain's first major amphibious landing, there were surely lessons to be learned. Hence, Assault Force Naval Intelligence Officer Commander Wedlock and Force Naval Signal Officer Lieutenant Commander Butler were flown back to the UK after Anserain was taken. They would speak before the brass, of course, but then Combined Operations Headquarters Commander Lord Mountbatten wanted to also know what they had learned. So he asked them to prepare a lecture to be entitled Operation Ironclad, the Madagascar Expedition, The military does not have time for provocative titles. But not only was the Combined Operations HQ staff there, but also the staff of Combined Training Center. Oh, and two more men were there, General Eisenhower and General Clark, and they had just arrived on that very day. Such was the importance expected from this report. The lecture was given, questions were answered, and then Force Naval Signal Officer Lieutenant Commander Butler was flown to the United States to give the same presentation. Did I say report? Sorry, I meant reports, for Ironclad was the first of its kind, so several dozen reports would be written up and dissected. Besides the main report just mentioned, everyone connected to this and future operations also looked forward to Admiral Seifert's report. When the Admiral's report came out, there was a 43-page summary as well. He mentioned the need for adequate naval and military staffs, which makes sense. Someone has to think through the information for the commander to make a decision, and then someone, again staff, to get the right order to the right person or persons. Seifert also stressed the need for more and improved shipping, i.e. landing craft that really should be a bit larger and definitely faster, and that the troops be specifically trained for combined operations. After all, the 29th Brigade, after it landed, had to walk for 20 miles before engaging the enemy. That was only possible, the Admiral said, due to their extensive training. No one, he stressed, should be involved in an operation without said conditioning. Next was more armored vehicles. Yes, the men will probably have to walk, run wherever they are going, but it wouldn't hurt, especially when speed was needed, which is always in a fight. But more vehicles gives the commanding officer more options, and again, that's always a good thing. And lastly, that the beachhead personnel, the Royal Naval Commandos, who went ashore first to make sure it was safe for the troops to come ashore, did such a great job that position should be made permanent. And indeed, such was the respect that the Admiralty had for Seifert that all of his suggestions were made official before the year was out. An idea that would greatly help the Americans land in North Africa in a few months' time was inspired by the trouble that the tank landing ship 
Bacallero had experienced. The solution, the Bacallero and other ships like her, were altered to carry six 60-foot-long sections of causeway. That way, if the boat could not get close enough, like at Courier Bay, then these would be used for the armored vehicles to roll off the ship and onto the beach. Again, this suggestion would help when the Americans landed in French North Africa in November. And the lessons kept coming. Now that there was a moment to think, Admiral Boyd got involved and said, you know, instead of bombing the Erichart airfield, that is, south of Anserane, if we had captured it, our planes could have landed there for repair and refueling. It would have saved a lot of time and increased their operational range. This made sense, and thus emerged the Mobile Operation Naval Air Base, or NONAB, organization. Basically, a unit ready to go that could be set up to repair and take care of fighters. It would be used a lot in the Pacific after the German U-boat menace dwindled away. But that's in the future. It was a solid idea, worthy of implementation. However, there was one problem. In the Pacific, when the British did try to get their MONAB units up and running, United States Navy's C&C, Admiral Ernest J. King, an Anglophobe, said, well, keep away from ours and don't expect any help either. But considering the vastness of the Pacific, not to mention the British were America's allies, King was not king, it seems. FDR was, and he overrode his prickly admiral. Just a few more lessons from Ironclad. First, the waterproofing of the vehicles had gone mostly well, but there were brand gun carriers not involved in the fight, as they were waterlogged on their way to land. To improve this process would be to strengthen the combat units. And the dummy parachutists had worked well here. Colonel Clairbout's best unit had been sent to attack the dummy units. By the time they, the French, realized what was going on and tried to return to Anserain, it was too late. The enemy was already established on shore, and these miniature men with parachutes would also be present at D-Day. And lastly, with all the reporters on board the ships asking too many questions at the wrong time, Seifert recommended a press liaison officer, and someone fulfilling this role has been with most militaries of the world ever since. As we have already covered, Operation Jubilee, the raid on Dieppe, would follow in a few months' time. And Seifert, knowing something of it, simply stated, Have your Army and Navy staffs and personnel work together for six months before moving forward. But this was not listened to for political reasons, and as we have seen, those that participated suffered a 68% casualty rate in northern France. Back to this war, having Diego Suarez Bay under British control was a good start, but only that, a start. The next question was, do we try to take the rest of the island, or do we capture a few more ports, thereby reducing any Axis naval threat? Which is when a local got involved, kind of. Prime Minister of the Union of South Africa, Jan Smut, messaged Churchill, He said, Tamatave, almost halfway down the east coast, and Mahunga, on the west coast, but more northern than Tamatave, as well as the other ports, they've been used regularly by French submarines, and they can also be used by Japanese. Smuts added, Madagascar authorities are violently hostile 
After capture of Diego, no material resistance is likely at present. But if time is given to organize resistance, we may have a stiff job. Control of Madagascar is all-important for our lines of communication in the Indian Ocean, and no risk can be run. After thinking this advice over, Churchill wrote to Seyfried on May 15th, Can you use both the 13th and 17th Brigades to take these two port cities? But if Seyfried thought they would not be enough, then these two brigades of the 5th Division were certainly needed in India. The British Prime Minister ended with, Madagascar must be a security, not a burden. We cannot lock up active field army troops there for any length of time. Seifert thought it over, and considering the stiffness of the resistance they had seen thus far, the two port cities would not be taken without a serious fight. So Churchill switched from warlord to politician. He told Seifert to secure Diego Suarez with minimum forces, but meanwhile continue talking to the French to see if a deal could be reached. Is this naive? It's not like Vichy was in a strong position, regardless of their hatred for the British. But this is Churchill we are talking about. He continued, and I'm paraphrasing, promise them money trade deals, and our exit when the war is over. But if they do not make a deal, then we choose violence. But switching back to the politician in Churchill, the Prime Minister told Sturgis and Seyfried that the men were to behave themselves towards the French, that the behavior of each of us towards the French population of Diego Suarez will depend much on the future of Anglo-French relations. Meanwhile, Jan Smuts was diplomatically screaming, Take the rest of the island! This will end badly if you do not. But Churchill, the Prime Minister, had other pressing problems. On May 17th, word from London came, No more immediate military action on the island, at least for the foreseeable future. So over the next few days, Force F, the naval force, was split into groups to make for parts in need of warships. Indomitable, Illustrious, and Devonshire left to join the Eastern Fleet, while Hermione went back to Gibraltar. Some of the remaining assault ships went to Kilindini in southeast Kenya, and the remaining destroyers went to join Admiral Somerville, C&C of the Eastern Fleet, which left the Romilies and two corvettes for submarine protection. But Seyfried was not pleased with his paucity of surface ships. He suggested to Admiral Somerville that he and the Romilies were not needed here. They were in danger. They should be redeployed. Seyfried did not realize it at the time, but his suggestion came at a time when larger moves were being made. First, Seyfried was told that four anti-submarine slash mine-sweeping trawlers were en route from Cape Town. Further, three destroyers were now being dispatched to Diego Suarez to arrive on June 5th. This would make Seyfried feel better when they all arrived, but he fretted over his ship. She was not safe from French or Japanese subs, but orders were orders. Equally obvious, the carriers indomitable and illustrious could not only not stay here, they were needed elsewhere. So they were removed, and in their stead, three flights of South African Air Forces landed at Arachart Airfield on May 12th. Now all here, the planes would form 20 Squadron, SAAF, or AKA, 
sugarcane wing. In all, 22 machines, of which six were Martin Maryland's, the remainder Bristol Beaufort's. To support them, 12 Lockheed Lodestars and one flight of JU-52s, gotten somehow, were also sent to the island. There would also be six Westland Lysanders sent in boxes to carry out reconnaissance and anti-sub patrols. And lastly, a squadron of Fulmars and Albacores were sent to fill out the air arm. And then, politics, indirect as usual, forced its way back to the front. On May 27th, one Leslie Barnett showed up in Anserain. Officially, he was an employee of Standard Vacuum Oil Company of South Africa. Unofficially, he was an SOE agent, codename DZ-14. The SOE, or the Special Operations Executive, or Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, was created in July 1940, and it had spread its tentacles to the island. DZ-14 had told the Governor General that the business people on the island wanted to get back to business, but for the last two years, Madagascar's major ports had been blockaded by British warships. Let me go talk to them and get a settled peace. That way, we can get back to business. And what's good for me and my friends is also good for you. And in that greed, DZ-14 was free to travel around the island. So Barnett, the spy, was given a message by Annette, and he took it to Brigadier Lush, who was trying to work things out with the Vichy French. But before talks could really start, they were stopped by London. The War Cabinet made it clear that no talks, official or otherwise, could take place without London's permission. It's not that Churchill did not trust or was mad at Brigadier Lush. No, he was pissed at de Gaulle and partially wanted to keep Annette in place, if only to upset the Free French leader all the more. Making it more awkward, Foreign Minister Eden was upset at the idea of Vichy being left in control, and he made this known to his boss. In other words, Eden wanted Madagascar controlled by the Free French, so the island in its entirety could join in on the war effort and not simply sit back and not hurt the Allies. Besides, Eden had an ace up his sleeve, or rather, the island did. Yes, the Allied war effort needed more mica, rock crystal, and rubber, and Madagascar had these, but they also had graphite, and the Americans desperately needed that for their Manhattan Project. So there it was. Eden was on one side, wanting the Free French to have Madagascar, despite the endless headaches it would cause, and Churchill wanted the Vichy officials to stay in charge, if only for the fact that he did not want to continually fight them, politically and militarily. There were more pressing theaters of operations for the Prime Minister to consider, which made the War Cabinet meetings less fun than normal. And as there was a war to win, a Madagascar compromise was agreed to, which pleased no one. First, as Brigadier Lush in charge of the British non-military aspect, held the Ansarain region, though he was a military man, he would be joined by a foreign office official, Lawrence Gafty Smith, currently in Cairo. The two men would run things so that the British military alone did not pull all the strings. 
But when Barnett, the Englishman cum spy who represented the South African oil company, returned to Diego Suarez from the capital on June 5, 1942, he had no word from Annette agreeing to either Allied or free French control of the island. So the status quo, murky as it was, remained. And as for the other British offer to let them have the port cities while Vichy kept the rest of the island, well, that was shot down by Pétain himself. Now, Annette knew he could not get his military to a place where they would not want to fight the British, nor could he guarantee that the island's civilians would not cause trouble for the British. The best he could and did do was to order the reservists to stand down and get back to their normal jobs. Either way, Churchill had the most important part of the island, at least in military terms, and the Vichy could keep the rest, for now, as long as they behaved themselves. But for de Gaulle, this was all way too much. He could clearly see that this was just a part of London's plan to keep a part of the island for themselves, that they would continue to grab French territory, declaring it was a war measure only, but somehow holding on to what they had when the shooting stopped. Thus, Churchill and Eden met with de Gaulle on June 6th. The Prime Minister again expressed his desire to only hold the island, or parts of it, for the duration of the war. Yes, London was still forming its policy towards Madagascar, but ownership was not in the works. De Gaulle's response, it liked him not. And as the resistance movement in France was growing stronger, i.e. larger and more organized, de Gaulle felt that he had more weight to throw around. So he was even more blustery than usual. To which the Prime Minister agreed that de Gaulle's man, Colonel Petchkoff, would be the first free French representative to go to Madagascar when Churchill said he could. And again, the War Cabinet was quite busy at the moment, so for now... Free and Vichy would not be allowed to mix. But just as that situation threatened to die down, another arose, a much bigger one. At 10.30 p.m. on May 29, 1942, a plane was spotted over Diego Suarez, but it left before being identified. Hours later, the Romilies was told to head to a new location in the bay to better interdict whatever was coming their way from this new threat. Also, air patrols were increased, but again, another plane was spotted the next day, but it departed before being identified. The flagship Romilies roamed around the bay and settled down in a new location. No sense in not giving whomever this was a nasty surprise when they returned. This was on May 30th, and as nothing eventful happened, when dusk came, all got ready for the night. But at 8.25 p.m. that day, a massive explosion could be heard all around the Anserain area. It was the Romilies. A torpedo struck true at her waterline, just in front of her A turret on the port side. Suddenly, there was a 20-foot-wide hole in this ship that was 26 years old. Her bow settled down into the water, but she stayed afloat. As she still had power, the Revenge-class battleship was moved to shallow water. Then, 30 minutes later, the tanker SS British Loyalty was hit as she was just starting to move out. 
But there was more to that story. The captain of this tanker saw a torpedo approaching the Romilly's, obviously to finish her off. So Master R. Westell put his beloved vessel in between the deadly fish and its intended victim, the warship. The tanker took the hit and went down quickly. Aunt Serene, understandably, went into panic mode, or something very much like it. The two corvettes in the harbor went on patrol, men were kept at their stations, and then a local tip provided the answer. At Cap Diego, on the bit of land that sticks out into the bay from the west, the commandos of Number 5 Commando were still there. They were approached by Malagasy troops who told them that they saw two strange-looking men running to the north, strange as in different from them. The commandos sent out a patrol, and they were soon near a bay that is to the northwest of Diego Suarez Bay. There, they came upon these two men. Though outnumbered, these two men did not surrender. In fact, they charged at the commandos. Never a good idea. While one man fired his pistol, a distraction, the second man charged at the commandos with his sword. Both were instantly shot down, but not before one of the commandos was killed by a pistol shot. All their belongings were gathered up, and the men were buried where they died. They were Japanese soldiers. The last thing Churchill needed to happen had just happened. Postscript. On the day of the sub-attack, just as night came, the Japanese submarine I-20 launched the midget submarine m 20B. This much smaller submersible penetrated Diego Suarez Bay and launched a successful attack at the two British ships. But as we have seen, the two men did not survive. The Romilies would be sent to Durban in South Africa to be repaired. The British loyalty would be refloated and repaired. She had lost five crew and one gunner from the explosion. The Japanese would believe, however, that they had sunk the Romilies as they did not see her depart for South Africa.